Hi, I'm LEGO lead designer Jonathan Benning. 2020 marks the 35th anniversary of the original Nintendo Entertainment System, and we're feeling a little nostalgic, which is why we're excited to unveil the new LEGO NES. What's it like to play the Nintendo Entertainment System? Okay, who doesn't love video games? Even if you don't love them at one point in your life, you've probably played Super Mario Brothers, right? Now, I'm talking about the original NES Super Mario Brothers. Hopefully your parents or loving aunt and uncle kept their original Nintendo systems, so you had the chance to try it. But do you know how it all started? How Nintendo saved the gaming industry in America? How the Super Mario Brothers has become one of the biggest gaming franchises in history? Today's special podcast episode is designed to teach you just that, while you enjoy building the newly released LEGO Super Mario Interactive sets, and specifically set 71374, the Nintendo Entertainment System. Let's click together some bricks and smash some Goombas as we learn about the history of the NES and the Super Mario Brothers. LEGO. LEGO. Hey Lego studs, welcome to the Back to Brick podcast. I'm your host, Garrett. Thank you for listening to our podcast and thank you for enjoying our efforts. And if you are new to the podcast, thank you for checking us out. We offer you as much information as possible about everything Lego. Today's episode is a very special one. It's our first trial at what we'll be calling Brick and Pod, which is designed to be played while you're building a specific Lego set. This is new for us here on Back to Brick and all feedback would be greatly appreciated. So you might know that the LEGO Group recently revealed their unique partnership with Nintendo, which led to LEGO Super Mario, a way that people can interact with Super Mario in the physical world. It gives gamers the chance to build Mario's home, search for treasures hidden by Toad, and defeat a Koomba Troopa in the Guarded Fortress, and much, much more. The new LEGO Super Mario gives the experience of interactive and gameplay to the traditional LEGO brick experience. In addition to these sets, LEGO debuted their own buildable Nintendo Entertainment System that includes an 80s-style TV set with a playable Super Mario Bros. video game. So, break out your instructions, start opening that first bag, and get to work. There are tons of fun and interesting facts throughout this episode, so keep on listening as you build your own Nintendo Entertainment System. Today's Brick and Pod is focused completely around LEGO Set 71374, Nintendo Entertainment System. Let's open that box and let's get to work. And once you finally open the box, you'll find you have two instruction booklets and a total of 25 bags. I recommend starting with bag one, just for good measure. 
And when you open your first instruction booklet, you'll find some cool history and facts on how the design of the NES was conceived. It showcases the LEGO designers, Diara McCabe, Pablo Gonzalez, and Leon Pillensburg, as they appear playing Super Mario Brothers and reacting to the TV. Also included, you'll find a small sticker sheet. Most people will be happy to know that there are only three stickers in this entire set, so a lot of the cool printed pieces are being used. That could mean that those parts will be used in future sets. Here's to hoping. The three stickers will be used mid-build as you construct your game cartridge and later your 1980s TV display. You'll see some more details as you move through the instruction booklet. And finally, find step one of the build. From here, I will begin diving into the origins of the Nintendo Entertainment System and interjected points to highlight some of the building features you will encounter during this build. The Nintendo Entertainment System is a third-generation home video game console. Produced, released, and marketed by Nintendo Corporation Limited, which is a Japanese multinational consumer electronics and video game corporation. Following their successful venture into the arcade gaming market with units such as the Wild Gunman, Popeye, and Donkey Kong in the late to 1970s and 80s, Nintendo wanted to get into the video game console market. Instead of large coin-operated machines, Nintendo wanted to join in the cartridge-based gaming that was taking over the industry. Consoles such as the Atari 2600 and the Intellivision proved to be wildly popular, and many third-party developers arose in their wake to exploit the gaming industry. Nintendo's R&D team had been secretly working on a system since 1980, ambitiously targeting to be less expensive than its competitors, yet with performance that could not be surpassed by its competitors for at least a year. Its designer, Masayuki Uramura, wanted to include a keyboard, modem, and floppy drive disk, but they were promptly rejected by the CEO. He didn't want to create a home computer, but a cheaper, more conventional cartridge-based console. The console's design and features were heavily influenced by the Colsum Vision, a competitor to the US video gaming console Atari 2600. The system was capable of producing smooth and vibrant graphics compared to the flickering and common slowdown in graphics that the 2600 often displayed. The Nintendo console was codenamed Gamecom, but Masaki's wife proposed the name Famicom as it was a family device and not a personal computer as the translation would have been in Japanese. The overall design of the Famicom is quite a bit different than what you're building right now. The device used a red and white color scheme similar to a popular DX antenna that was in the Japanese marketplace. So as you look around, you see all the bags in front of you have mostly black or gray. We're going to get to that very, very soon and why the colors did change. The Famicom was released in Japan on July 15th, 1983 for about 14,800 yen, about 140 to 160 US dollars at the time. Its launch games included Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and Popeye. The final design included two controllers that were permanently attached, mostly to bring down the cost. There was an external port that would be used for other devices in the future. Something such as a keyboard, the Famicom modem, a Famicom disk system would later be released as an add-on, other peripheral devices connecting via the extension port would include the Famicom light gun, family trainer, and various specialized controllers. Many such devices would be produced for the console though many of them, including the Famicom 3D system and Famicom Disk system, 
were never released outside of Japan. It also included the cartridge section and an ejection button from a top-loading perspective. The cartridge itself was about twice as large as a cassette tape to allow for the gaming software and memory to be included. The ejection button was suggested by Gompei Yoki because he thought children would be entertained just by pressing it, and it would help by not damaging the cartridge. I've personally played with a Famicom at a thrift store, and I can agree that it's very entertaining. But the release was plagued with problems. The initial console had a bad chipset that would cause the system to crash. Nintendo initiated a recall for the first products to replace the motherboards. Once that issue was fixed, the popularity skyrocketed and it became the best-selling gaming console in Japan in 1984. By the end of 1984, Nintendo had sold over 2.5 million Famicoms in Japan. After their success in the Japanese market, Nintendo set its sights on the U.S. market. They entered into discussions with Atari to release the Famicom console under Atari's name, but renaming it the Nintendo Advanced Video Gaming System, or AVS for short. The deal was set to be signed at the 1983 Computer Electronics Show, CES, in June of that year. But upon arriving at the show, they noticed their competitor, Coleco, was demonstrating Donkey Kong on their newest computer illegally, named the Coleco Atom. This act violated the exclusivity deal Atari had licensed with Nintendo. About a month later, the CEO of Atari was fired and the deal fell through, leaving Nintendo to fend for themselves in the U.S. market. But now you're probably deep into the design aspect of that LEGO NES. Isn't that spring action really cool? The spring action gaming cartridge was a game changer for this console, or should I say, control deck. But why did the design change from what I described as the red and white Famicom to the NES? Let's just say that the consumers of the 1983 gaming crash had a hand in this. Now, what do you mean, gaming crash? To be honest, I'd never heard of this either. In the United States, from 1983 to 1985, video games had died off. But now the big question is why? What caused it? Well, to be honest, there are many factors. First, when you'd buy an Atari 2600, it'd show these awesome graphics and details of the game that you'd be expecting to play as box artwork. Then when you'd open the box and plug in the system, it would display something completely different. There were even occurrences of Pac-Man being shown on three different video gaming consoles, all with different colors. Other factors included oversaturation of the games and personalized computers becoming more and more accessible to the daily consumer. A major factor was loss of publishing control. Four Atari programmers left the company in the 1979 because they were upset that Atari didn't allow credit to appear on their games and did not pay employees royalties based on sales. They founded Activision in 1979. They began the major move to the third-party development of games to further flood the market. These games were able to be played on Atari but weren't being sold by Atari, causing a huge loss of capital for the Atari brand. Thus began the recession of the gaming industry in 1983. Major companies went under and sales plummeted. A notable story that occurred at this time was with Atari. They created a game based on the ET, the extraterrestrial. 
but because of the crash and the quality of the game, they discreetly buried them in a landfill in New Mexico, as well as a back supply of other games that just weren't selling. It became a myth that Atari had buried all these in a landfill somewhere in New Mexico. Until 2014, when a documentary came out, they actually found the landfill and dug up all those unused copies. But here we are, the story turns around, especially for Nintendo. After the deal fell through with Atari and the crash of 1983 to 1985, they were on their own to figure out how to enter the U.S. market. Nintendo had already announced that they intended to sell their product into the United States. But how would they do it if video games were on a downturn? Even an issue in Electronic Games in 1985 stated that the video game market in the United States had virtually disappeared and that this could be a huge miscalculation on Nintendo's part. At this point in the build, you might be a bit confused. Most of your internal sections are in different colors and just for structure, but then there's this section that looks semi-detailed. It has orange and turquoise pieces. If you know what it is, nice work. But if not, it's just a little sp surprise for later. When you get hold of the Nintendo Entertainment System, when you master Rob the Video Robot, and meet the challenge of Gyromite, when you shoot the light-sensing Zapper, when you play the system with so many arcade hits, you're playing with power. The Nintendo Entertainment System Deluxe Set. Batteries not included, Super Mario Brothers, and other games sold separately. Back to Nintendo's plan to dominate the United States. So Nintendo stepped up to the plate. At the 1985 CES event, Nintendo unveiled their American version of the Famicom. This is the design in which you are building today. With a new hinge lid and a zero force insertion cartridge slot, it was an entirely new system. It was a great design feature that mimicked the cassette cartridge on most cassette players that was popular at the time. Some games were shown at the show, but no major details were revealed. But Nintendo promised honesty to put real in-game art on their boxes to depict what a player would actually be seeing when they played. Some interesting facts to note. That zero insertion force card slot wasn't actually zero force. When you place the cartridge into the slot, you had to apply some force pushing the cartridge down into the console. This bent the contact pins ever so slightly. The slot also allowed dirt and dust in that eventually causes connection issues with the card. The connectors were also designed in nickel and the game cartridges in brass plated nickel. They were prone to corrode due to oxidization over time and use. So what did we do to fix the issue? We blew on them and we still do. This is the only a temporary fix and actually causes oxidization to become faster due to that moisture. So pro tip, don't blow in your NES games. Go get some isopropyl alcohol and clean those contacts. When Lego was finally ready to release the American Famicom, it was rebranded as the Nintendo Entertainment System or NES. Why not the video gaming system that they originally came out with that AVS? Well, remember they were introducing this product in a video game recession. They had to be smart. They called it a control board instead of a console, and it was a game pack, not a video game. These basic changes helped in Nintendo's gaining traction in the American consumer market. Another thing that helped Nintendo was something called 
the 10 NES. This is a small chip that was a lockout feature, not allowing any other third-party games to be played on their system. Nintendo did allow third-party games to be produced, but they had to go through Nintendo for quality control. If they passed, they would be allowed access past that lockout and be sold through Nintendo with the Nintendo Seal of Quality. Over time, people worked past this lock by taking their NES apart and clipping that fourth pin on the lockout chip to allow access. This chip was good and bad. Good because it controlled their market share, so they didn't end up like Atari with third-party games taking away from their own profits and quality of games. And bad because of a little thing we call the blinking red light. If you've ever inserted a game into your NES and turned it on, and you only get a blank screen and a blinking red light, you know the frustration I'm talking about. This was caused by the NES 10 chip. It needed constant communication with the gaming cartridge to verify that it was safe and compatible with the console. But with dirt, age, and corrosion, the chip couldn't always get that constant communication. So it reset your NES every second to try to reestablish connection to verify the compatibility. This led to the beginning of the blowing of the cartridge, the hitting of the side, the opening and closing the lid six times, and turning the lights on and off four or five times. It didn't remedy the issue. Eventually, after so many complaints, Nintendo released a cleaning kit in 1989 to help fix the issue. So to test the waters in America, Nintendo did an initial launch in New York City on October 18, 1985. Different bundles of the NES were released over the first few years. The initial shipment of 100,000 were the deluxe set were to be sold. The Nintendo Entertainment System then consisted of the deluxe set, which included Rob the Robot, a control deck console or the NES, two game pads or two controllers, the Zapper Light Gun used primarily for Duck Hunt, and the game packs Gyromite and Duck Hunt. 17 total games were released, including 10 Yard Fight, Baseball, Clue Clue Land, Duck Hunt, Excite Bike, Golf, Gyromite, Hogan's Alley, Ice Climber, Kung Fu, Pinball, Soccer, Stack Up, Super Mario Brothers, Tennis, Wild Gunman, and Wrecking Crew. Sales were not high but encouraging throughout the holiday season, though sources vary on how many consoles were sold then. In 1986, Nintendo said it had sold nearly 90,000 units in nine weeks during its first 1985 New York City test. In January 1986, an independent research firm commissioned by Nintendo delivered a survey of 200 Nintendo NES system owners, showing that the most popular given reason for buying a Nintendo was because children wanted that robot, followed most strongly by good graphics, variety of games, and the uniqueness and newness of the package. The robot, named Robotic Operating Buddy, or ROB, is credited as primary factor in building this initial support for the system in North America. It was a marketing ploy by Nintendo to set themselves apart from the other consoles in the industry. Over time, ROB didn't provide much to the overall experience and slowly died out. Its original Famicom counterpart, the Famicom Robot, was already failing in Japan at the time of the North American launch. Nintendo began to see growing interest from American consumers. Nintendo and Sega Genesis, which was similarly exporting its master system to the U.S., both planned to spend about $15 million in the fourth quarter of 1986 to market their consoles for the holiday season. 
Nintendo sold 1.1 million consoles in 1986, estimating that it could have sold 1.4 if the inventory had held out. Nintendo earned $310 million in sales out of the total 1986 video game industry sales of $430 million. This blew the 1985 industry sales of $100 million out of the water. For the nationwide launch in 1986, the Nintendo Entertainment System was available in two different packages. The fully featured $180 deluxe set, as had been configured during the New York City launch, and a scaled-down basic set that included the NES control deck and two game pads, but no games, for $79.99, and a bundle pack with Super Mario Bros. for $99.99. But now you have, may have gotten to the game pack and started on the gaming controller. What do you think of the LEGO NES? Do you think it, it looks and acts just as the original one? Even down to the control buttons? Crazy stuff what LEGO can do. Let's talk a little bit about that gaming cartridge and gaming controller. As they did with the console redesign from the Famicom for the NES, they did the same for the gaming cartridge. The NES cartridge, called a game pack, is about twice the size of the Famicom cartridge. The cartridge used a 72-pin design compared to 60-pin design as the Famicom. We all know them by their distinct gray color, but some, such as The Legend of Zelda and Zelda II, the Adventures of Link were manufactured in gold cases. Wouldn't that be a cool gift with purchase, Lego? That's an idea for you. With the design of the cartridges being ever so slightly different, we see that the controller really didn't change too much. It was designed in a brick style with four main control buttons and a cross that was to give players the ability to move their character in different directions, similar to the joysticks of the older gaming system. They were weren't permanently attached to the console like the Famicom were, which gave it versatility and access to have other controllers being used, such as the zapper gun or light gun. Shaped like a futuristic gun, it was used to target ducks in Duck Hunt. And what an amazing game that was. We would stand right in front of the screen to get the ducks. It didn't really work, but it was still pretty fun. The Famicom controllers have only one controller with the start and select button, and the other had a built-in microphone so you could interact with games. But that was taken out for the NES controllers to allow both to have the start and select button. Alright, but let's jump back to the history of NES as they continue. By 1987, the Nintendo Entertainment System's library had exploded with classic flagship franchise building and best-selling hits like Super Mario Bros., The Legend of Zelda, and Metroid. At more than 40 million copies, Super Mario Bros. was the highest-selling video game in history. Released in 1988 in Japan, Super Mario Bros. 3 would gross more than $500 million, with more than 7 million copies sold in America and 4 million copies in Japan, making it the most popular and fastest-selling standalone home video game in history. By mid-1986, 19% or around 6.5 million Japanese households owned a Famicom, one-third by mid-1988. By 1990, 30% of the American household had the Nintendo Entertainment System, compared to 23% for all personal computers. Its popularity greatly affected the computer game industry, with executives stating, Nintendo's success 
has destroyed the software entertainment market. And there's been a much greater falling off of disc sales than anyone anticipated. What's it like to play the Nintendo Entertainment System? The growth in sales of the Commodore 64, also a keyboard personal computer all-in-one, is an 8-bit home computer ended. Nintendo sold almost as many consoles in 1988 as Commodore 64s had sold in five years. Nintendo had completely destroyed the Commodore 64 gaming market as of the December of 1988. By 1990, the NES had reached a larger audience base in the United States than any previous console surpassing the previous record set by the Atari 2600 in 1982. In 1990, Nintendo surpassed Toyota as Japan's most successful corporation. Around 1990, Nintendo had to face an immense competition from the PC Engine in Japan and the Genesis in North America, and Nintendo's market share began to erode. Nintendo responded in the form of the Super Famicom or Super Nintendo Entertainment System. In North America and Europe, the Famicom's 16-bit successor happened in 1990. Although Nintendo announced its intentions to continue to support the Famicom alongside its newer console, the success of the newer console offers began to draw even more gamers and developers from the old system to the new system, accelerating the decline. A revised Famicom named HVC-101 model was released in Japan in 1993. It took some design cues from the Super NES, and the model remained into production for almost a decade before finally being discontinued in 2003. After a full decade of production, the Nintendo Entertainment System was formally discontinued in the United States and Europe on August 14, 1995. Nintendo did allow, if you had a broken console, to bring it in under the Nintendo Power Swap program to have it be replaced for $25 up until December of 1996. By the end of its run, more than 60 million Nintendo Entertainment System units have been sold throughout the world. As previously stated, the Nintendo Entertainment System's market presence declined from 1991 to 1995, with the Sega Genesis and Nintendo's own Super Nintendo Entertainment System gaining market share, and with next-generation CD-ROM-based systems forthcoming. Even though the Nintendo Entertainment System was discontinued in North America in 1995, many millions of cartridges for the system existed. The secondhand market of the video game retail stores, thrift shops, yard sales, flea markets, and games repackaged by Game Trader Inc. and sold at retail stores such as Kmart was just the beginning. Many people began to rediscover the NES around this time, and by 1997, many older system games were becoming popular with collectors. At the same time, computer programmers began to develop emulators capable of reproducing the internal workings of the Nintendo Entertainment System on modern personal computers. When paired with a ROM image, the games can be played on a computer. Emulators also come with a variety of built-in functions that change the gaming experience, which allow the player to save and resume programs at the exact spot in the game. 
popularity of the NES continues to this day. In 2016, Nintendo released a Nintendo Entertainment System Classic Edition, which featured 30 built-in games that cover a broad range of the console's history, including Balloon Fight, Bubble Bobble, Donkey Kong, Double Dragon, Dr. Mario, and many more. It was about one-third the size of the original and included upgraded graphics and no physical cartridge or slot. Nintendo throughout the years continued to improve from the Super NES to the Nintendo 64, the Wii, the Wii U, and the Switch as consoles, but also branching out into other gaming things such as the Game Boy, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance, Game Boy SP, and so on. And they'll continue to advance and improve on their products. But this was just the briefest history of the NES system, which started it all. Did you learn something? Now, we're going to talk a little bit about that game that made it so popular, Super Mario Brothers. Family computer, so Nintendo released quite a few games for the NES. A total of 715 known licensed games were released for the Nintendo Entertainment System during its lifespan. 677 of those games were released in North America, plus two championship cartridges with an additional 35 released in Europe or Australia and one additional game in Hong Kong. The most well-known is Super Mario Brothers. We all know Mario. He's the face of the Nintendo Corporation. He also hasn't aged today, if only that was possible. He got his start in the arcade game Donkey Kong as the jumping guy, who Donkey Kong tried to defeat. Then in 1983, he began his own game, alongside his brother Luigi, as Mario Brothers. Due to his popularity, Nintendo brought it to Famicom as a cartridge game in 1985 as Super Mario. It then came to the NES in the United States and the European markets in 1985 and 1987, respectively. In Super Mario Bros., the player takes on the role of Mario, the protagonist of the series. Mario's younger brother, Luigi, is controlled by the second player in the game's multiplayer mode and assumes the same plot role and functionality as Mario. The objective is to race through the Mushroom Kingdom, survive the main antagonist, Bowser's forces, and save Princess Toadstool. The game is a side-scrolling platformer, and the player must move from left side of the screen to the right side in order to reach the flagpole at the end of each level. Here's the story per the original instruction booklet. One day, the kingdom of the peaceful mushroom people was invaded by the Koopa, a tribe of turtles famous for their black magic. The quiet, peaceful, loving mushroom people were turned into mere stone, bricks, and even field horsehair plants, and the Mushroom Kingdom fell into ruin. The only one who can undo the magic spell of the Mushroom people and return them to their natural selves is the Princess Toadstool, the daughter of the Mushroom King. Unfortunately, she is presumably in the hands of the great Koopa Turtle King. Mario, the hero of this story, maybe, hears about the Mushroom people's plight and sets out on a quest to free the Mushroom Princess from the evil Koopa and restore the fallen kingdom of the Mushroom People. You are Mario. It's up to you to save the Mushroom People from the black magic of the Koopa. The game 
is divided into eight worlds and four levels per world. At the end of each world is a castle where Mario or Luigi must face the main antagonist, Bowser. Other enemies Mario and Luigi can encounter include Lil Goombas, Koopa Troopas, Buzzy Beetles, Koopa Patrol Troopas, Bullet Bills, Hammer Brothers, and Leaping Cheep Cheeps. Throughout the game, you can upgrade your Mario as you progress. Having him eat a mushroom makes him grow to giant Mario, or a life-size. Stepping on a fire flower gives him the ability to shoot fireballs. And then there's the Starman that makes Mario invincible against his enemies for a short period of time. But really understanding the game, we have to learn how it was made. Development for Super Mario Brothers began after Shigeru Miyamoto and Tashimi Tezuka finished two other games together beforehand, Excite Bike and Devil World. When designing Super Mario Brothers, they wanted to use the scrolling screen of Excite Bike and the large character spirits from Devil World in order to make Super Mario Brothers stand out from the other titles. Miyamoto and Tezuki wanted to fit various technologies into the game, comparing it to a puzzle. The name Super Mario Brothers also come from Mario's new super form. The Legend of Zelda was another game that they worked with where they used other key features from that in the Mario game, such as the fire bars were just one example. As they were present in the dungeons in The Legend of Zelda, Miyamoto implemented fire bars in Super Mario as an obstacle. The main goal of Super Mario Brothers was to have a character travel through many lands, all with different themes to each other, and it would feature a diverse terrain such as land, water, and sea. They also intended for the main character to be twice the size of the final one. In the beginning of developing the game, the placeholder playable character was 16 by 32 pixels square. That square couldn't even jump, and as a result, Tezuka suggested making Mario the playable character instead of a square due to the popularity of Mario Brothers, which Miyamoto accepted. Nekoga and his team, System Research and Development, colored the background blue. In some levels. This was very unusual because video games released during this time period usually had a black background to avoid eye strain and to avoid getting distracted by the bright colors. After coloring the background blue in some levels, Nakoga then started designing maps for this game. Miyamoto wanted the levels to be around a minute long and he told SRD to do the same. He then realized that is an usually takes about a second to travel across the screen and that the numerous screens would have to be implemented in one screen. SRD first thought that Miyamoto had requested them to make 60 screens per stage, but Miyamoto then explained that it, obstacles in each screen would slow down the player's progress, which resulted in the average about 12 screens per level. The stage with the most screens has only 32, which is about half of what SRD had originally expected. When designing the stages themselves, because a level grading tool wasn't available to them at the time, Miyamoto and Tezuke would draw the levels on graph paper, and then Nakoga and his team would design and program it into the game. If edits were to be made to the original drawings, a sheet of clear paper was placed over the original drawings. Nakoga had stated that a lot of the documents were sent to his team every day to change some aspects and stages. Every day, the group would do all that they could with the stages starting the document, and they would work until 10 at night most times. The Super Mario game has been released in every major Nintendo video gaming console since the beginning. The Super Mario 
game follows Mario's adventures, typically in the fictional Mushroom Kingdom, with Mario as the player's character. He's often joined by his brother Luigi, and occasionally by other members of the Mario cast. As in platform video games, the player runs and jumps across platforms and stops enemies in themed levels. The games have simple plots, typically with Mario rescuing the kidnapped Princess Peach from the primary antagonist Bowser. I will list off a few of these titles and talk about some of the key ones that kept Mario alive for the life in 35 years. We have Super Mario Brothers, as we stated before, released in October of 1985. And it continued in Super Mario Bros. 2, Super Mario Land, Super Mario Bros. 3, and jumping around to the new console, Super Mario 64, released on September 29th, 1996. New Super Mario Bros. released May 15th of 2006, continuing to the new Super Mario U, November 18th, 2012, Super Mario 3D World, on November 22nd, 2013, and Super Mario Odyssey released October 27, 2017. These are only the Super Mario games. There are many offshoots and other games from characters. We've got Luigi World. We have Paper Mario. We have Mario Party, Mario Kart. It built the full franchise, and it's been going for 35 years. Now I want to talk a little bit about some of those special games that helped make and continue in its history. Open World Super Mario games are the next stop in the timeline of the legendary Super Mario. Three games in the series featured primarily open worlds, 3D platformed gameplays with greater emphasis on exploration. Check this out! Whoa! What am I, a monkey? Uh, you can zoom in, zoom out, change angles. Go anywhere you want to go, do anything you want to do. Here we go! This place is really sweet. System. Super Mario 64 was the first 3D and open world game in the series, and a launch title for the Nintendo 64 home console. Each level is an enclosed environment where the player is free to explore in all directions without time limits. The player collects power stars that appear after completing tasks to unlock later courses and areas. The Nintendo 64's analog stick made an extensive repertoire and precise movements in all directions possible. The game introduced moves such as punching, triple jumping, and the use of wing caps to fly. Mario must once again save Princess Peach from Bowser and collect up to 120 power stars from the paintings and return them to her castle in the overworld. There is a total of 105 power stars in the painting with 15 hidden within the castle. The game's power-ups differed from previous games, now being three different hats with temporary powers. The wing cap, allowing Mario to fly, the metal cap, turning him into metal, and the vanish cap, allowing him to walk through obstacles. Another game, released in October of 2017 for the Nintendo Switch, Super Mario Odyssey, is a return to the open-world sandbox 3D style of game last seen in Super Mario Sunshine and Super Mario 64. After Mario's cap is possessed by a spirit named Cappy, he is able to use it to temporarily capture, get it, capture, enemies, harmless life forms and objects, and utilize their powers. Like previous sandbox 3D games, the game's world contains a large variety of objectives that can be achieved in a nonlinear order before progressing. 
Super Mario Odyssey was critically acclaimed and earned multiple awards. This game adventured through many different kingdoms in addition to the standard Mushroom Kingdom Mario's adventure and is the very first one to include a vocal theme song. Jump up, superstar. In this build process that you're continuing with, you've probably worked your way up into the 1980s style TV. And what you'll see is a movable screen that depicts the Super Mario Brothers from the original release. Hopefully, this can be changed out intermittently. As you can see, the tracks can be placed in and taken out just by lifting up the roof. Maybe you can put new and different games in there. I guess we'll just have to stand by and see what LEGO comes up with. Super Mario Brothers received critically acclaimed and is considered one of the best games of all time. One of the most praised aspects of the game is its precise controls, which allow players to control how far and high the characters jump and how fast they can run. The game popularized side-scrolling video games, and the game has since received several sequels and spin-offs, as we discussed, and many different ports and alternate versions. All characters, enemies, and items found in the game have become core elements of the Mario franchise, and the plot of Bowser kidnapping the princess has continued to be used throughout the core Super Mario series. The game was placed 14th in the 100th issue of Nintendo's Power's 100 Best Nintendo Games of All Time in 1997. It ranked the first spot in Electronic Gaming Month's Greatest 200 Games of Their Time, named in IGN's Top 100 Games of All Time list in 2005 and 2007. And it also declared the be second best Mario game of all time. IGN also placed it third in their top 100 NES games list of all time. Super Mario Bros. sold 40.24 million units with its NES release, being the best-selling Mario game and among the best-selling video games of all time. It has received several other works, such as the Super Mario Bros. Super Show and the Super Mario Bros. Film. It is the second most popular video gaming franchise of all time. The first is also Nintendo with their Pokemon franchise. The most expensive Nintendo game that has ever been reported is none other than the Super Mario Brothers. A mint condition sealed copy at a rating of 9.4 of the original Super Mario Brothers sold at auction for $114,000 on July 10th of this year, making it the most expensive video game ever sold at auction. It's one of the most iconic video games in the world and one of the most popular franchises that the world will ever know. The game's impact on pop culture was so big that during 2010, a street in Zaragoza, Aragon, in Spain, was named after it. He was even featured during the 2018 Olympic closing ceremonies to promote the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo. This game holds a special place in my heart as a kid, I played it on my dad's own NES. I'm extremely excited to see LEGO and Nintendo coming together to design products like this. I think this set is a superb example of the word nostalgia. The build quality is great, it has beautiful designs and cool features, some hidden, that I think anyone that's played will really enjoy. I think with the detail and play features are as wonderful as the original and will give the people to drive to find that old NES, blow off the dust, and figure out how to plug it into their TV. Personally, I can't wait to get my own LEGO NES, and I really hope you're enjoying your own right now as, as you listen to this. If you're on the fence, 
about getting one, I hope this changed your mind and you're on your way out to the store to get one now or online to order one yourself. Otherwise, I still hope you enjoy this special Brickin' Podcast episode and are building a Lego set right now. Please subscribe for more Lego news and designer interviews and Brickin' Pods like this. Reach out to me on Instagram at backtobrick2 and check out those amazing Lego builds from around the world. And as always, I'll leave you with this. Get creative, get out there, and go build something.